The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Why the doctrines of grace? Why are we talking about this topic? We pick this topic because we are convinced that a, a right understanding of the doctrines of grace really fuel our worship of the Lord. And we are thoroughly convinced that a right understanding of that is the, the milieu in which we properly uh, understand what God has done in saving us and then causes us to worship him accordingly. So that's why we've picked this topic. Uh, it is a topic about the fact that God gets all the glory in salvation, that it is entirely a work of the Lord. It's nothing we've done. It's nothing we've accomplished. Our salvation is not because we were better or merited it more, uh, but simply because God did this work in us. And so that's why we think this is an important topic for us to understand. Uh, these doctrines are what we call the five points of Calvinism. And I want to give you just maybe a little background on that so you understand kind of where this has come from. So just a couple minutes here before we actually start our first section, just I want you to know the, the lead up to what brought this about. And it's important to understand that sometime back, uh, a little bit after the Reformation, so late 1500s, early 1600s, there were a group of people that began to oppose uh, the teachings of the churches in the Netherlands, the Holland, in Holland and the, the Reformed churches in that area. And uh, they assembled together under Jacob Arminius, and they became known as Arminians. And uh, they were the ones that really formulated their opposition to the sovereignty of God and salvation. In fact, they met together, and they came up with a five-point manifesto, which is known as the Five Articles of Remonstrance. And uh, they came up with five particular areas and issues that they were taking issue with uh, those churches in that day. Here are the five points of the remonstrance. Point number one, man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it's put before him. So their first point was a defense of the freedom of man's will. If the gospel is presented to anybody, they can come if they want. So it's a, a freedom of the will issue. Point number two was God's election is conditional. And what they meant by that is they believed that God looked down the corridors of time and saw who was going to respond to the gospel and then God chose them. So that is a conditional election, an election based on the fact that God foresaw faith in men and therefore chose them. Point number three is God's or Christ's death was designed to save every man and whatever it accomplished, it accomplished for all men equally. What we mean by that is they believe that Christ's death made all men savable, all without exception, and Christ's death on the cross actually paid for all the sins of all people. And so we're going to flesh that out a little bit tomorrow morning. Uh, but that's our third point. Fourth point is saving grace is resistible. Saving grace is resistible. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. So when the Holy Spirit comes and presents the gospel, he can be resisted. He can be refused. 
And then the fifth point is those who do exercise their will to be saved at some point later can exercise their will to be unsaved. They can reject that. They can be lost. So those are the five points of the remonstrance. And what happened then is obviously that is a, a system that believes that salvation was primarily in the hands of man, that they were uh, believing and promoting the fact that um, it is primarily up to man whether they want to be saved or not. The choice is left to the individual, that Christ did his part to save people, and now it's up to us as to whether or not we want to accept that. And the final decision, of course, in that view lies with man. So that, that's that system. And so in about 1618 and bled into 1619, um, a group of pastors got together at the Synod of Dort, and they began to address these issues and said, are these biblical? Is this what the scripture teaches? And as they assembled together, they began to address those five points. And what came out of that is what we know now today as the doctrines of grace, the tulip, uh, the five points of Calvinism. And so it is essentially the opposite of what I just shared with you. Uh, if you took what I just gave you and, and give you the complete opposite, that is essentially what we're talking about here over the next uh, couple days. So what are they? First of all, total depravity. It means that every man is entirely corrupt and sin has affected every part of their being. Uh, and they cannot be saved uh, because their will is enslaved to their sinful nature. So that is total depravity. You, unconditional election, that God chooses whom he will save, not on the basis of anything good in them, but by his choice of them in eternity past. L is limited atonement, or we prefer the term definite atonement or particular redemption. That is the fact that, that God sent Christ to actually redeem those who are his and who are his elect. Not to make all men necessarily just savable, but to actually redeem through a work of Christ. I is irresistible grace, the belief that God draws people to himself, that he sovereignly overcomes this rebellious nature and draws us to himself. And then P, of course, is perseverance of the saints, uh, that those who are in Christ will never fully be lost or lose their salvation. So it is essentially the opposite of those five points of the remonstrance. If you prefer a bacon analogy? <laughs> Here it is. B-A-C-O-N. Bad people. Already elected. Completely atoned for. Overwhelmingly called. And never falling away. So if that helps you better understand that than Tulip, there you go. I'm not sure that's helpful, but Tulip's probably a little bit easier. Uh, but if you like bacon then there you go. Um, that may help you. In this system, obviously, our conviction is that God gets all the glory. He has done all of the work. Salvation is all of grace. Salvation is entirely a work of the Lord. He has done it. He gets all the glory. It is God who actually saves sinners. So I go through all of that to help you understand that the five points of Calvinism, which we don't even necessarily hold to them as Calvinistic teachings, they are that. We believe them to be true because they're found in the Bible. We believe this, these set of principles not because we've embraced a system. Uh, we, we believe them because the scriptures teach them. And that's what we want to demonstrate to you this morning and uh, tomorrow morning as well. But I want you to understand the fact that 
It's not that Calvin presented these five points. It's not that he, he didn't even formulate them. It was his followers who sometime later, probably 50 years after he died, were responding to a group uh, that had said something contrary to that. So that's a little background on these doctrines. Uh, as I said, we believe them to be true because we believe that they are taught in the scriptures. So very quickly here, just why are we doing this? Why this topic? Uh, just uh, let me wrap this up with some reasons why we picked this topic. First of all, we believe that a robust understanding of these things will help us properly worship the Lord. Uh, that when you really wrap your minds around these doctrines, uh, you can't help but worship the Lord and what he's done. That's the first reason. Second reason we picked this topic is because we just frankly want to marvel at our own salvation. Uh, we want to marvel at the fact that God has done this. He's been so merciful to us. He's been so gracious to us. Our salvation is entirely from him, not from us. And so we want to celebrate that and rejoice in that. And the third thing, I do want to say this in kind of anticipation of maybe some response to this, is that this ought to produce in us evangelistic fervor. And I think what's happened in some cases is the pendulum has been swung from Arminianism all the way past a balanced biblical view of these things to what is known as hyper-Calvinism, where it's gone too far, where we, we, some would believe that because God is sovereign, you don't need to do anything. You don't need to pray. You don't need to do missions. You don't need to share the gospel with anybody because God's going to save who he's going to save anyway. And that's, that's not upright either. That's unbiblical. We would reject hyper-Calvinism. And so we don't want to teach these truths and come away saying, man, God is so sovereign in salvation, and that be a wet blanket on our evangelistic fervor. We don't want that. In fact, our conviction is that the most zealous evangelists are Calvinists. The most zealous evangelists are people who get these understandings, who get these truths, and then are so overcome and overwhelmed with the fact that God does actually rescue sinners that we go out and we share the gospel with everybody, confident of the fact that God's going to rescue some because he promises to do that. So we don't want this to be a, a disincentive to evangelism. We want this to motivate our evangelistic fervor. So those are some hopes and dreams and desires as we come to uh, our conference uh, today and tomorrow. So with that, I want to introduce Joe. Joe Hamlin's one of our pastors here, pastor of uh, family and missions and outreach. He's going to come and bring us the first one on total depravity, and then uh, we'll take a short break after he's done. Thanks, Todd. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. And I was talking to uh, Chris Brown before I came up here, and he's like, man, Joe, you get total depravity, you get, you're always preaching on Good Friday, I'm always getting the ones that are real somber, and, you know, they always look at me when it's time for those kind of messages. So as we dig into this topic, total depravity this morning, as Todd said, this is nothing new. It's, it may be new to you, but it's not new to Christianity. And as we hear that uh, title of Calvinism, we need to understand that these doctrines, they, they are under the, the kind of the, the veil of Calvinism, but we don't agree with everything Calvin taught, right? We don't agree with, you know, Calvin was a, a covenantalist. Calvin would say that God is done with Israel and that the church has replaced Israel. Well, we don't believe that. Calvin would 
hold to pedo-baptism. He would say you baptize babies. Well, we don't agree with that either. Kelvin would, for the most part, hold to a, a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, except when it comes to areas of uh, promises to physical and national Israel. Well, then it's typological or spiritual and, and revelation, you know, so we don't agree with that either. So when we're talking about Calvinism, as Todd said, we're talking about these five soteriological doctrines. We're saying, when I, I'm a Calvinist, so when I say I'm a Calvinist, I'm saying I hold to those five soteriological doctrines, those doctrines concerning salvation. A Calvinist doesn't mean that you hold to all of these other Reformed beliefs, as it were. Not necessarily. So with that being said, the most logical place to start a conference like this is where the Synod of Dort started, total depravity. That's the place to start. The condition of man's heart. We need to not be deceived that our hearts are totally corrupt. They're totally depraved. I want to share an account that I read while I was studying for this from Richard Phillips in one of his books on the doctrines of grace. And dealing with total depravity, he read this account. He said, or he wrote this account. From 1934 to 1936, the British journalist Malcolm Muggridge was on assignment in Calcutta, India. Now, for various reasons, he didn't take his wife with him or his children. So he's on assignment in Calcutta. One morning, he decides to go down to the river for a swim. As he entered the water, he saw across the river a nude woman bathing on the other side of the river. He felt an overwhelming impulse to go to her and seduce her, just as King David felt when he saw Bathsheba. Temptation storming his mind, he began swimming toward her. The words of his wedding vows came to his mind, but he responded by swimming faster. The voice of allurement called out, Stolen water is sweet, from Proverbs 9.17. But he swam faster. But when he pulled up near the woman, with his lustful heart beating furiously in his chest, she turned, and Mugridge saw she was a leper. Mugridge says, This creature grinned at me, showing a repulsive, toothless mask. His first reaction was to despise her. What a dirty, lewd woman, he thought. But then it crashed in on him that it was not the woman who was dirty and lewd. It was his own heart. That's a perfect illustration of what the Bible teaches on the condition of our hearts. The, the, the form of that woman's face and her, her deformed body reflected his heart. Our hearts are corrupt, our minds are depraved, and our desires are enslaved to our passions and our sin. They're enslaved. So this is where we must begin. This is where we have to start. Before we can plumb the depths of election, before we can consider the atonement of Jesus Christ, before we can look at God's grace or the Christian's perseverance, we need to begin with our desperate condition before God. Our inability to come to God on our own. Our insatiable lust for sin 
And yes, our hatred for God. That's where we need to start. And to do this, I'd like to go to the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And from this passage, we will articulate this doctrine of total depravity. And in doing so, we'll answer the question, how bad can our condition really be? And we'll see four realities concerning our depravity so that we can, first of all, as Todd said, have a realistic understanding of our need. And secondly, have a greater appreciation for what Christ did for us and understanding his sovereignty in this. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'll read the text, I'll pray, and then we'll begin looking at these four realities concerning total depravity. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, I pray that you would just clear our minds from all the many distractions. Lord, help us to, to glean from this text and to learn what it means to truly be totally depraved, that we would have a greater understanding of your sovereignty and your holiness, and we would have a deeper worship of you as we go through this weekend. We thank you for the opportunity to plumb the depths of these doctrines. Thank you for preserving your word for us and showing us these truths. We're so grateful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we look at the text, the first thing we see here is that our is that our previous in our previous condition without Christ we were unresponsive in our depravity we were unresponsive look at the, the first verse there it says and you were dead in your trespasses and sins now paul doesn't he doesn't pull any punches here as it were he doesn't say you were sick in your trespasses and sins or you were you know you were just tainted by sin. No, he says, you are dead. Necros is the Greek word. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're a corpse, having no spiritual life in us whatsoever. It needs to be clearly understood here. Completely unresponsive to the things of God. This points to the totality of our depravity, of our condition before Christ. When you're when you're physically dead, your whole body is unresponsive. Your whole body's unresponsive. It affects every part of you. The dead are unable to respond to the living. Ever since the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned. That sin nature was passed on to all mankind after the fall. Just like your DNA is passed down from your parents. The sin nature was passed on 
to all mankind after that fall. So they're unable, we're unable to respond to the things of God. We can do nothing pleasing to God in our fallen condition. We can do nothing to merit salvation. Make no mistake about it, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no understanding of God. We did not seek him, but rather we actually ran away from him as fast as we could. We weren't ever seeking God. We were running away from him. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, before you came to Christ, you may have heard the gospel a thousand times. You may have been in church, you may have gone to youth group, whatever, and you've heard the gospel a thousand times. But in your dead state, you were unresponsive. You were unresponsive. We were hearing with our physical ears, but not with our spiritual ears. It was like we were in a a foreign land. And we're listening to somebody speak a different language. We're just like, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. No idea what they said. I remember when I was stationed in Germany um, in the Air Force, our family, my my mother-in-law and father-in-law came to visit, and we decided to go to France on the Autobahn in this little Volkswagen Beetle. It's crazy. We're going like 60 miles an hour, and people are going, but we go to Paris. We're on our way back. And my father-in-law was driving. He takes a wrong turn. And you, he gets off the, the exit. And now to get back on, it, they don't just let you back on like they do here. So he turns, he turns around, and, and he's trying to talk to this guy in the booth. The guy doesn't speak a lick of English. He's speaking French. And my father-in-law is just like, why can't he understand me? <laughs> they wanted us to pay. We just didn't understand it. And finally, he just opens the gate, and he's like, oh, go. He let us go. <laughs> but but that's, that's the same thing. But it's much worse than that. It's much worse than that. Paul uses stronger language here. He says you're dead. It's greater than just not being able to understand the language. We're being told we need to be brought to life before we can understand anything pleasing to God. We have to be brought to life first. If you're saved today, it's because he first brought you to life. He regenerated your heart. Then you repented and trusted. You you were completely dead. You could do nothing in and of yourself. You couldn't come to him until he regenerated your heart. You were actually born again before you came to him. You had to be. Colossians 2.13 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive. He did it. It was nothing we did. He did it. Praise God. Now, sometimes when people hear the term total depravity, they're like, ooh, wait a minute. It makes people uneasy. But you need to understand that when we say total depravity, that's not to say that this depravity manifests itself to the same degree in every person. We know that's not true. But the extent of the corruption is total. Its effects 
every part of the person. There's no part of the individual that's not affected by this depravity or this sin. Every single, every part of you is affected by it. Completely, total depravity. And to get this across, God uses that term, dead. You are dead. It's a vivid picture of our spiritual condition. Just as when a person dies, every part of their body is affected. You don't see a person die, then their foot tries to get away, or their hand starts to move. No, every part of their body is affected. It's dead. The only thing that a dead body can do is rot and smell. That's it. So this this parallel symbolism of physical and spiritual death is a good picture. And it, it wouldn't have been foreign to these readers of Ephesians. It wouldn't have been something the ancient readers would have been like, oh, what's he talking about there? It was used several times in other places in Scripture, as well as in other ancient writings. This parallel is used. In, in fact, in the book of Luke, we see the prodigal son, when he leaves, he's considered dead. Same idea. He's considered dead, but came to life when he returned. Luke 15, 24 says, for the son of, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He, is, he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. So this would have been clearly understood by the readers here, this symbolism, to help them get, get across what Paul's talking about here. Now, notice the text again. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespass sins. What is he talking about when he says in? Does he mean that you were dead because of your trespasses and sins? Or does he mean you were dead by way of your trespasses and sins? Or does he mean you're dead in the midst of your trespasses and sins? That's what he means. He means you're dead in the midst of. The the article that's being used here is best understood as a dative of sphere or or realm in the midst of your sin. You're dead. We're dead. We're not dead because we committed sin. We're dead in the midst of. We're in the realm of. You've heard several times from this pulpit. You're not a sinner because you sin, but you sin because you're a sinner. That's the idea. You're born a sinner. That nature, that sin nature is there. And Paul further points this out in the text by using the terms trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This isn't to indicate two different infractions here. He's not saying you were dead in your trespasses and then over here your sins. No, he's not, it's not what he's talking about. He's referring to both the sphere of the existence, as we said, in your trespasses and sins, and the breadth of this condition. The the whole being is one of trespasses and sin. It's it's who you are. And we'll look more at that when we get to the uh, last point. But it's who you are. But just understand that this depravity covers the gamut. It's a total depravity, a depravity that's all-inclusive. So much that it can be said of you that before Christ saved you, as the text says, you were quite literally spiritually dead. And completely unresponsive to that call. 
But not only were you unresponsive in your depravity, you were also unconcerned. You were unconcerned. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the text. Verse 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And notice there again he says walking. This indicates a steady movement forward. You're not laying there, you're not sitting there, you're walking. You're going along in this life, walking in lockstep with the world. You're not questioning the world's ways, you enjoy it, you're just walking with it. You're going according to the course of this world. But also remember, it says in verse 1, you were dead. So you were walking dead. You were essentially a zombie. A spiritual zombie, for lack of a better term. You had no concern about your depravity. You're unconcerned about it. You didn't think you were that bad, to tell you the truth. You actually would have said you were a good person if somebody would have asked you. You would have said, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I never killed anybody. I never stole anything too expensive. Well, those are your standards in that condition. If someone would confront you regarding your sin, you would assure them, I'm fine. You're just fanatic. You're going a little too far with this Christian stuff. That's how you would have responded. You probably thought that those people were fanatics. Another illustration of when I was in um, the military, we used to, I worked at the passenger terminal and we had to take a bus out to the flight line and they had, the dignitaries would come in sometimes way out in the back of the flight line, two or three miles out. So we had to take this bus and we had to drive out there and pick these guys up and bring them back to the passenger terminal. Well, I remember at one point, this was right before I got saved. I was, I, was, I was struggling. I was wrestling through these things. I'd been convicted, and I was reading the Bible. I was trying to figure this stuff out. And I, I remember this individual was going out to the flight line, and I thought, this guy, I think he's a Christian because he acts so good. He's a nice guy. He talks about going to church. So I thought, I'm going to ride in the bus with him. So I got in the bus with him, and we're going out there. And I think his name was Mike. It was a long time ago. But I said, hey, Mike. I'm struggling with this, you know. I, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I, I'm really struggling here. I want to go to heaven. What, how, I essentially said to him, what must I do to be saved? And he looks at me and he says, Joe, you're fine. You're a good guy. He said, you know what, I just try to live my life good, um, try to love my wife, and that's all you need to do, and you'll, you'll be good to go. And I was just kind of like, that's all you got for me? But that's, that's how you are before you come to Christ. You're unconcerned. You think you're good. And that's completely in line with the world. Just try to be a moral person. You'll be fine. The fact is, you're not fine. If you're a friend of the world, the Bible tells us you're an enemy of God. James 4.4 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy 
of God. So being a friend of the world, you're making yourself an enemy of God. That's not a good place to be. You see, there's no neutral ground. You're either, you either love God and are his friend and his child, or you love the world and you're his enemy. You cannot do both. Uh, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I can almost hear it already. Somebody saying, wait a minute. You're telling us we should not love the world. But doesn't John 3.16 say, for God so loved the world? So shouldn't we love the world? He gave his only son for the world. Well, we're talking about two different things here. Two completely different things. In John 3.16, tells us that when it says God so loved the world, it's talking about a in a personal sense, about the people of the world. That's the context of John 3.16. It's referring to the people. It says, whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. The whoever is pointing back to people. Any person who believes in him will have eternal life. That's the context of that verse. Our passage, on the other hand, is referring to the world system. The world system. And we know this, once again, because of the context of the passage. The text isn't talking about the physical planet here. It talks about the world. It's not even talking about uh, people of the world in a personal sense, as John 3.16. It's talking about the world system. It's saying, if you're walking according to the course of this world, the world system, if you're walking according to that course, that path, if you're going in that direction, then he says, the ways of the world as well. You're walking according to the course or the ways of the world. Then he says, according to the prince of the power of the air. If you look at Ephesians um, chapter 2, verse 2, the second half, he says, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So the way of the world, the power of the air, and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, they're all referring to the values and beliefs of this age. Or you might have heard it said in the past by somebody, the zeitgeist. You'll hear that a lot with the new age, the zeitgeist. You're walking according to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. It's not neutral by any means. The text tells us that it has a leader, it has a general, and that, that leader, that general, is Satan. He's the prince the text is referring to. He's the one who sets the tone for the zeitgeist. And before you came to Christ, you were following along in that course. You're following your leader, who is Satan. So as you walked according to this course, you were following Satan. You were going right along with the plans, just as a, a son of disobedience. And you didn't even care, because you didn't even realize it. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that's you. You're spiritually dead. You're unconcerned about it because you don't even realize it. You're just going along that course. And that brings us to the next point in the text. Not only is an unbeliever unresponsive in their depravity, 
Not only are they unconcerned in their total depravity, but they're also unrestrained in their depravity. Look at the text. Verse 3a and b. This first and second half of verse 3. Among them too, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. I just want to point out, there's the idea again of the living dead. And the use of the word lived when referring to our past life rather than walked, as he said previously, reemphasizes just that all-encompassing nature, that totality of the depravity. Another reminder that it was in your makeup. He just points that out. Your nature, if you will. It encompassed every aspect of your life. So yes, you were, you were walking according to the course of this world, but this walking was ingrained in your dead condition. Now, the statement that you, were form- that you formerly lived in the lust of your flesh and indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind shows the unrestrained nature. Look at that. Formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of, our f- of the flesh and of the mind. Lived in the lust of the flesh. Indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The only thing restraining you in your pre-conversion state, in your sin, was the grace of God. You may say, well, what about my conscience? Well, the problem with that is that the conscience is only as good as the information that informs your conscience. If you're living according to the course of this world and your mind is being informed by, specifically, what about our present culture on what is good and what is acceptable and what is bad, what is normal, if your conscience is informed by, say, the, the LGBTQ community or the social justice community, if your mind is informed by that, your conscience, your conscience isn't going to help you when it comes to your depravity because it's not in, informed by the truth of God's word. Your conscience is only as good as what informs it. So you are restrained by the grace of God in your depravity. And as soon as your fleshly desires override your conscience, you're going to do it anyways. And your conscience is going to grow a little bit, your heart's going to grow a little bit harder each time. People who play instruments understand this. If they play the drums, you start to play the drums and you get blisters on your fingers. First few times and you're like, oh man, it hurts. So you want to put a band-aid or something on it, but that's not the thing to do. The thing to do is to just keep playing and eventually... Those blisters turn into calluses. The irritant hardens your fingers. And if you ignore the sin in your life and you ignore your conscience, your heart's going to do that same thing. At first, it's going to hurt. But if you allow those things, allow that sin to continue, your heart's going to grow a little bit harder and a little bit harder and a little bit harder each time. So you're completely callous to the sin. Then what seemed so bad early on in your Christian walk, it doesn't seem so bad anymore. Now, as I said, an, an unbeliever retra- retrained by their conscience is still an unbeliever who has no righteousness in and of themselves. They're still an unbeliever. This is where we were before Christ saved us. Never forget that. Whatever our flesh lusted after, we wanted to get it, 
This isn't just referring to sexual lust here. That's what the first thing we think of is, as our illustration at the first, when we first started was sexual lust. That's what we think of, but it's not just that. It's talking about all these um, sinful lusts. It's part of it, but it can be any kind of lust. Lust over power or recognition, lust for money, a better job, lust for any material aspect of life. It's any kind of sinful lust, and we all formerly lived in this lust without the restraint of the Holy Spirit. And it's only by the grace of God that we didn't act on our unrestrained lust. We simply didn't have the opportunity. If the opportunity arose and we were living in the lust of our flesh, we would act on it. Now, in adding to the depth of our depravity, the text tells us that while we were living in the lust of our flesh, we were indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This points out that not only were we born this way, we're born totally depraved in nature, but we're also continually acting on this depravity. So it's, it's not just we're born that way, but we're acting on it continually. And as we said, living in it brings out the idea of nature, but indulging in it brings out the idea of action. We're living in it, but we're indulging in it. We love it. Acting upon, or choosing, as it were, the avenue of our sin. Notice it says, indulging in the lust of the flesh and the mind. Indulging in the desires of the flesh is pointing to one being given over to doing whatever the flesh is so inclined to do. If the flesh wants to do something, you just give it, give in, with no thought of, of what you're doing. You just do it. You do what you do because you want what you want. I remember going to a, a counseling conference one time, and the teacher kept saying that you do what you do because you want what you want. You indulge in your sinful desires, even coming up with these clever and, and deceptive ways to do them. Some people love their wickedness so much that they spend large amounts of time trying to figure out ways that they can do this without people finding out because they just love it so much. Sometimes in this, the line between reality and fantasy becomes blurred. I've heard stories of people who become so convoluted that they believe that they can indulge in certain sinful activities without consequences, even to the point of murder. You hear this all the time. A husband or a wife begins committing adultery and... And they get so deep into this, they actually think they can murder their spouse and then be able to spend the rest of their life with this person they're committing adultery with. Are you kidding me? But it just becomes, the, the lines be, between reality and fantasy become blurred because of this total, just depra depraved, wicked heart. Wants what it wants. They're indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It all begins in the mind. Remember that. It all begins in the mind. The heart, the Bible tells us, the heart speaks from that which fills the mind. And we also read in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. This is referring to the deliberate and blatant choices that defy the will of God. And that comes from this wicked, wretched heart of ours. 
In other words, you knew what you were doing was against God or that it was sinful, but you made, up, you made the choice to do it anyways. You, you justified it in your own mind. Often carefully and deceptively. Why? Because you were totally depraved and unrestrained in your depravity. So friends, our depravity was such that we were unresponsive in our depravity. We were unconcerned in our depravity. We were unrestrained in our depravity. And now finally we see that in our total depraved condition, we were uneducated in our depravity. Look at the last part of verse 3. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We've touched on this throughout the whole message. But here he points it out once again. You see that? We were under the wrath of God by nature. We've already said we, we inherited this nature from Adam. We didn't have to learn how to sin. It comes natural to us. We didn't, weren't educated in this. We just did it when we came out. We we're born sinners. If you're a parent, you know this. You know through experience that the smallest child knows how to lie or how to disobey their parents. They'll scream, they'll, they'll yell until they get what they want. You don't have to teach them how to sin. Now the phrases, uh, children of wrath and sons of disobedience, those are fam familial in nature, aren't they? They indicate the, the visceral, intimate relationship between us and our depravity. There's this intimate relationship between us and our depravity. Just as a child is born into a family without first doing research, a child doesn't research, well, which family do I want to be born into? They don't educate themselves before making this choice, whether they want to be in this family or this family. They have no choice. They're just born into this family. We're born with inherited depravity. We're not educated in this area beforehand. We don't have to learn how to best accomplish our sin. We're quite adept at that. Now, to be sure, we do get better at our sin as time goes on, don't we? We practice it more and more, we get better, but this leaves no room for us to unhitch ourselves from our sin. No room to deny culpability when it comes to our depravity. It's significant that at the end, we see the phrase, even as the rest. This is once again a reminder that there's, there's none righteous, not even one, and that we were no better than anyone else. We were born dead in our trespasses sins, just like the rest. We were born totally depraved, just like everybody else. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In sin, your mother conceived you, all of us. So now we need to ask the question, so what? So what? So we, we have come to this conclusion that we're in fact born totally depraved. So what? We've seen in this passage that we were unresponsive, we were unconcerned, unrestrained, and uneducated in our depravity. So how does that affect me? How does that affect us? Well, it should do one of two things. If you're truly born again, it should bring about praise and awe for what Christ has done for you. 
It should remind you of the sovereignty of God, and it should bring you to your knees in praise and rejoice in what he's done for you, because he did it all. The very next verse indicates this in our passage. In Ephesians 2, 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Praise God. This should urge us on to, to greater worship of him, understanding that he did it. It should, it should enrich your worship as you meditate on this reality. If you're not a Christian, if you have not been transformed by God, it should bring about a desperate urgency. It shows you your, your dreadful condition before him. It clearly reminds you that you're, you're a child of wrath, you're a son of disobedience, that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. It reminds you of this. It's a warning saying, listen. You will face the wrath of God based on your own merit, and that will not bode well for you on Judgment Day. Left in your current condition, you'll die in your sins, and you will go to hell in this dead condition. You have a sin nature, but you're also currently indulging in these desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we know that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's tons of passages, Ephesians 5.5, 5. for this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Galatians 5. 1921, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you that those who practice such things, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This should weigh heavy on your heart, and it should drive you to the cross. It should drive you to Christ. In Galatians, we read that the law of God is our schoolmaster. It's our tutor, our disciplinarian to lead us what? To Christ. When you hear these things, don't say, man, that's harsh. I don't like that. No, say, you know what? I, that's me, and I need Christ. Go to him. Run to the cross. You, you have to repent. You have to turn from your sins and place your trust fully in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation. Do this and you'll be born again. You'll be transferred from death to spiritual life. No longer being a dead spirit, but a living one. You see, though all of this is true, we just talked about concerning your condition before Christ. It's all true. Jesus Christ came to earth and he paid the debt. 
He paid the debt that you couldn't pay. He took the full wrath of God on his shoulders on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserve for our sin, and then he died, but he didn't stay dead. As we just learned a couple weeks ago, he rose again, conquering death, showing that that sacrifice that he made was sufficient. He rose from the dead. This is why you can come to him today in repentance and faith. When you do this, his righteousness, when you repent and you trust in Christ, after he's regenerated you, you repent, you trust in him, his righteousness, beloved, is put on you. That's amazing. So now you're going to be judged by God, but he's looking at you and you're covered in the blood of Christ. His righteousness has been credited to you. Enter into my kingdom. Because you've trusted in Christ. Because without him, you're doomed. I would just say, if you're here today and you, haven't, if you don't know Christ, turn to him today and live. Now as we continue on this weekend to look at the rest of the doctrines of grace, remember that this one must be clearly understood first. It must be clearly understood before we look at the rest. We must have a good understanding of our natural spiritual condition before we look at election, before we look at the atonement or consider irresistible grace or ponder the, the perseverance of the saints. You have to understand this. We need to understand that in our depravity, we were unresponsive. We were dead and could not respond to the gospel at all. We were unconcerned. We just went along with the world, walking according to the course of this world with no concerns or reservations. We were also unrestrained in our depravity. When the opportunity arose, we indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And only by the grace of God were we restrained because we didn't have full opportunity to indulge in these wretched desires. And finally, we saw that our depravity, in our depravity, we were uneducated. We didn't need to have anybody teach us how to sin. Because it's our nature. To be sure, we refined our, our various sinful ways. We would devise means of, to fulfill our nefarious acts so that we would get the most pleasure or satisfaction out of these acts. How can I do this so that I can prolong that, that sinful pleasure that's so fleeting? How can I prolong it? How can I can think of different ways to, to do this? We did that. How can we do it without getting caught? But we didn't have to learn how to sin. We were totally depraved. So just make sure that you stick around for the rest of this week and stick around as we, uh, we move on to this next doctrine. The bad news of your total depravity is not the end of the story, but it is part of the story that we need to understand. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this passage. We're grateful for the reminder of these truths that, yes, we are, without you, we're wretched. 
We have no hope apart from you. But Lord, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us. Thank you that if we've trusted in him, his righteousness has been imputed to us and we will never taste hell. We will never experience the agonies of eternal damnation in hell. Father, thank you for giving us a greater understanding that we might worship you greater, have a better understanding of your sovereignty. And I just pray that this will drive us to our knees in worship. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.